internet humans. Uh, Joel here. Um, with the, and George. And George can't get Joel. Uh, George. Oh. I'm here, it's okay, I'm here. Um, with another episode of Space Cadets, this week we will be looking at Red Planet. God, heaven help us. <laughs> Mary, well, what have we done? <laughs> yeah, so, um, I think uh, Red Planet, I think you recommended that movie a few weeks ago for us to check out. It, I, I do, I, it, this is my cross to bear, I will, I will accept responsibility. We, I decided that because the first, you know, the first two films we've done, Event Horizon and Gravity, are relatively well received, I thought it was best to do a film that had a, should we say, a somewhat more checkered reputation. Hmm. And so we've arrived at Red Planet. <laughs> I've certainly chose wisely on that one. It certainly fit that brief. Oh, definitely. All right. Cool. So before we start proper, just one small little housekeeping thing. Um, as some people may have noticed, if you've listened to the earlier episodes, there was some volume discrepancy between Crazy and I. Now, thankfully, um, through his editing magic and wizardry, which is just alien to me, and I worship him unreservedly for it because I don't know how it works, Crazy has managed to essentially managed to split our audio feeds so that he can alter our volumes um, separately. So hopefully you're now listening to us both coming through much clearer and, um, again, with a much similar volume. So thank you all for your patience whilst we learn how to sort that out. Yeah, well, while we figure, it, figure out how to do what it is we're supposed to be doing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but the podcast is very much a, an, an evolving project, and you get to see you get to see us struggle as we learn. <laughs> now, I, now, we forgot last week, so before we start the actual synopsis craze, so you want me to just quickly run through some of the cast and crew for Red Planet? Yeah, go for it. We, yeah, whilst I remember, because we did actually forget. All right, so George trying to pronounce names. Here we go. So the film uh, Red Planet was released in 2000. It was directed by Anthony Hoffman. It was written by Chuck Farrer, P-F-A-R-R-E-R, Farrer. And it was also written by Jonathan Lemkin. And it stars Val Kilmer as Gallagher, Carrie Ann Moss as Bowman, Torn Sizemore, Torn Sizemore as I always went with a uh, Birchinal. I believe that, so. Yeah. Birchinal. Yeah. Again, <laughs> this is why people come just to listen to me struggle with names. Um, Benjamin Bratt as Santon, Simon Baker as Pettengill, Jerome and Terence Stamp as Chantillus. Um, and the budget for the film, which is something that I will mention periodically throughout this film to remind people, is 80 million US. And it did not make it back. <laughs> no, not even half. No, it really didn't. Oh, and now we're going to find out why that might have been the case. Yeah, we're going to... Ah, oh, God, okay, yeah, this is going to be interesting. <laughs> we're going to sit in and journey, um, journey across the vast cosmic array to Mars, where I'm sure absolutely nothing untoward involving killer robots will happen at all. Nope. Alright, so I'll, I'll lead over to you, Crazy, and you can take it away. Alright, so um, it's, I, I feel like the movie started quite strong by sort of setting the stakes in a very reasonable and interesting way. You got, I think, voiceover with um, Bowman uh, just sort of establishing the fact that the Earth is overpopulated um, they're trying to terraform Mars uh, with algae, 
and oh, but oxygen labels aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing, so they need to go and find out why. She introduces the crew, um, a fairly typical grouping uh, for this sort of a film. You know, you got the the cocky guy, the um, the various know-it-alls, the science geeks who aren't really meant to be there, but they're there for some reason. <laughs> um, well, to be then, fair, they've got three cocky guys. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. No, I'm going to get to that. I, I'm going to. Oh, yeah. I, I've got something for that. Um, oh, don't worry. <laughs> so yeah, that happens. Um, it talks about how they uh, they've got their little spaceship that had to be set up in orbit because it couldn't launch. Um, Which apparently is just the the International Space Station stretched out. Yeah, basically. <laughs> um, yeah, and then it's going to take six months to, for them to to get there. And then after that, we have um, we have what I like to call the Captain and Friends special. Um, which is just what I'm going to use to describe any scene where you have um, the crew in this sort of a film sitting around a table and we get to know them as they get to know each other. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's it's a fairly stock standard introduction. It is, yeah. It, like I say, very very standard this sort of thing. Exposition establishes the stakes. You know, we have to save humanity and then we get to see the crew we're going to stay with. You described them as fairly typical. I, I would say that to a point, but... I think it's fair to say they're slightly less professional than your standard spacefaring crew. Mm. No, I, I think when I, when I use the word typical, I mean stereotypical. Yeah, I think so. Uh, so, do you think, I, I think we'll, we may as well just go through each of them now very briefly, shall we? Yeah. Um, because there's, because there's, so, I mean, these are such, you know, intriguing, complex, and deeply written characters that, you know, we, we really need to spend such time on. Do you mind if I take the lead on this? No, please, please go ahead. Um, I'll I'll sit back and watch your suffering. Okay. So I should probably start, uh, should probably preface this by saying I am a big fan of the actors in this movie. I actually feel like um, the characters that were written for them were not written well. With that said, I'll start with Bowman. Um yeah, very much a standard sort of captain-type character, leader-type character with a relaxed streak by the books. Um, for me, kind of the only likable character established in the first 30 minutes, but she spends almost the entire film as sort of like the ground to Houston go-between and overwatch for the ground crew. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it doesn't... It's an interesting thing, because her character spends the entire film apart from her team, the group that she's responsible for, and... That was interesting. That's the only interesting part about her being out of focus for most of the movie. Um, okay, moving mm. on then to I, I I call them the three Stooges, but I'm gonna call I'm gonna rename them the three douche lords. <laughs> um, oh yes. Yeah, I give I give nicknames to characters that annoy me. So <laughs> I'll start with the um the prime douche lord Gallagher. Uh, textbook. Our protagonist. Yeah, our protagonist. <laughs> Textbook egocentric jackass that has to learn it's not all about him. Eventually he works us out, and there's no K guy in the end. A changed man. That annoyed the shit out of me. Um, I know, I can, to give people who haven't watched the film an idea, I know how to summarize his character to a T. At the very beginning, they're shown doing the classic walking through the sort of um, tubing towards their, you know, towards their um, spacecraft, and the technicians around him uh, are obviously getting them ready to go into space. He is wearing sunglasses, stylized yeah. silver sunglasses, and refuses to spit out gum when the technician directs him to. 
Yeah. That is our, our hero. <laughs> we're, we're doomed. Um, <laughs> exactly. Alright, um, stooge number two, Birchnall, sub-lord douche. Because no one, because one is never enough. He will almost, well, I, I, I wrote in my notes, he will almost assuredly die quickly. He did not. Okay. Wishful um, thinking on your part, perhaps. Wishful, wishful thinking. Well, I mean, when, when, when it was sort of, doing, sort of doing the rundown of the different, well, the different characters, uh, <laughs> um, I'm like, well, he's redundant. He's obviously just going to be there so he can die early, early on and establish some danger for the, the rest of the cast. Um, oh, oh, that happens, but it's not here. <laughs> oh. mm. And yeah, we, he he does he does something that I'm going to comment on, which is why I've labelled him sub lord douche, but I won't mention that here. Mm-hmm. Um, he's he's very cocky. He's obviously highly intelligent. He he mentions having several PhDs, but he's yeah, he, he's sort of like the, the the smart guy that apparently knows everything except manners. Um, I will say one thing about him, but as we get through in the review, I think he ultimately. It says much about the film, but I think he ultimately becomes arguably the most sympathetic character. He does, actually, yeah. Mm. Um, which, is in, which is interesting, but mm, I, I, I think that says more about the other characters that he's with more than anything else. A little bit, yeah. Uh, okay, so then we have we have Santon, uh, Overlord Douche. Um, there's really not a lot to say about him. He He doesn't seem... Because he wasn't around for long, he was the one who ended up dying quickly. Um, he comes across as the sort of person who, if something failed, he wouldn't—he would blame everything but himself. Mm-hmm. Um, which he I, did. Which, which Spoilers. yes, which he absolutely did. Um, but yeah, I, I, I wrote attached to his his character brief. You know, why are there three characters in the film that all serve the same goddamn purpose? Why? Mm. I mean, that, that's... How did this pass... Oh, my goodness. I mean... <laughs> I, I should tell everyone, for those who don't recall from my early episodes, Crazy is presently studying screenwriting. Yeah. And this is... This is this must really irk you to think that these people were given $80 million to work with. I can only imagine... Yeah, that there was there was one person doing the writing for the whole thing, and that person was never challenged at any point from concept to shooting draft. Mm-hmm. It... <laughs> oh, I I knew I, I knew it was going to be great doing a um a film. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll take the last one if I may, and then finally, thank God. Oh no, there's one more. There's one more. So we have it written down. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we said so much. Go on, crazy. No. You don't really say anything now, do you? Oh, see, this sucks because I like Simon Baker so much as an actor. I think he's great. But Pettingle is as forgettable as the silence on Doctor Who. You could you could watch him turn around and be like, huh? Which is what we've done. We've just watched him earlier. We, we can't remember him. Oh, my God. And it, Yeah, it's a shame. It's I mean, the most important thing he did was push Santon off a cliff. Exactly. That was it. <laughs> okay. And the final character is, thank God, bringing class to these proceedings is Terence Stamp. I mean, I, again, I'm just pleased to see they have an accomplished, celebrated, you know, mature actor who understands his craft and will be there throughout the film to lend it the gravitas it requires. I'm pleased he'll be there, you know, throughout, because obviously he's such an important 
you know, he's such a capable actor, they're obviously going to make the most use of him that they possibly can. Yeah, right up until he ruptures his spleen and dies. <laughs> but what, how far oh. into the movie? Less, less than a third of the way? I didn't get it. I think <coughs> less than half an hour, I think 25 minutes. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, dear. But again, we're getting ahead of ourselves. <laughs> so these, these are our bold, pioneering space people. Um, and I, I again, there's, there's not really very much more to talk about on the ship. Ah, no, actually there is no apologies. I'm just looking for my notes. There is one more character, quote unquote, we actually have to mention. Mm. And that is Amy. Um, do you recall what it, it's an acronym? Do you know what it stands for? Autonomous Mapping and Excavation, something or other. Something like that. Yeah, I honestly can't. I should have written that down, but I didn't. No, <laughs> because it's red planet. <laughs> And, I mean, she doesn't, well, Amy, I call her she, because it's Amy. Um, she really doesn't, she spends most of the movie not doing the thing he's named for. Mm. So, for those who haven't watched it, Amy is essentially a robot that this crew have on loan from the military. And conveniently, the military forgot to take off and deprogram it. So they kept all of the military hardware one and just gave it a switch that says killer mode and peaceful mode, essentially. Mm. That's quite literally because they actually do, do do that at one point. He does literally just flip a switch and change it onto its killer military mode. Why they needed that setting on a exploratory mission? What is essentially exactly. exploratory? Well, well, exactly. Why you need it? Why you can't just have a drone flying around anyway? But that's again that would ruin the plot. So you have the robot of plot contrivance, um, Amy, with them, and again it's sort of established that she's a, you know a fairly proficient killing machine by all by all estimations. And she's there to, I suppose, pick up samples for them. Mm. And map things? No, yeah, very true. She does have things. Although they have the orbiter to map things, so why would... Uh, <laughs> I'm a bit crazy, I'm thinking about the film. <laughs> oh, dear. It did. Um, oh, one thing I would note about the characters is, whilst they're on their way to Mars, you do have a brief um, sort of... Philosophy 101 discussion between Chantillis and um, Gallagher. Mm, which is the um, physical equivalent of screaming into a void. It really is. You have, you have Paul Chantillis trying to explain the nuances of sort of philosophy and the fact that he, you know, he, he felt that science couldn't answer every question, so he turned to philosophy. And he's trying to explain it to, well, again, sunglasses and gum chewing Gallagher. Mm. Which is doesn't go terribly well, does it? No. Uh, suppose the characters, and uh, I mean, uh, I, uh, unless there's anything else you want to mention, Craze, I think we should just go to Mars, because that's really them, isn't it, in a nutshell? Yeah. And the whole first ten minutes is really just how it establishes the characters and tries to tell us, um, hey, we're here and we're, for the most part, not terribly endearing. Mm, please like us. Hmm. So they arrive at Mars um, and they're preparing to they're preparing the lander, you know, for what they hope to be a fairly conventional um, conventional entry to uh, the Martian atmosphere. And then things go as they want to do in these sort of films. Things do go ever so slightly awry. Yeah. So the entire ship gets rocked by a solar flare and nearly incinerates everybody. Mm -hmm. A solar flare that I hasten to add. Mission Control would have known about and warned them about probably days or at least hours in advance of. Mm. 
because uh, so um, it, it, the film sort of portrays the idea of its solar flares travel at the speed of light, which they don't. Um, that's just me. <laughs> it's a bit science thing. I mean, you know, who needs it? <laughs> you don't need science, actual science, and science fiction. No, exactly. It was silly. Um, so they have a solar flare, and it's it, the solar flare renders the orbiter um, dead in the water, effectively, um, she, running out of power. And so they all have to essentially enter the lander incredibly quickly before the orbiter powers down. Um, unfortunately, though, at this point, it's revealed that the manual release isn't, oh, sorry, the automatic release system isn't operable. So Bowman has to remain on the orbiter to um, manually detach the lander. So obviously she is going to be separated from the rest of the crew as they travel down to Mars. Yeah. Uh, do you want to, I don't know which one we'll do first. So, so they do separate. So Bowman's, so basically we set up the premise for the film that Bowman is on the orbiter and the, everyone else is on Mars. Now, the next things sort of happen simultaneously, but it'll probably be easier to take them one at a time. Uh, do you want to talk about what happens to Bowman once the crew leave? <laughs> At least for the first, you know, little while. Well, she's just sort of wondering about the ship, isn't she? And then she... To be honest, I was looking away from the screen during this. <laughs> I had... I was looking away, not because of the movie, but because there was a cat. <laughs> I'm embarrassed to say there was a cat in the way. And it was much more interesting. <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, I have to. I have to admit, I have to confess, I did miss that part. No, it's okay. Uh, I can. I can. I, I. I unfortunately suffered, so I will. I, I will. I watched it, so I, I. I have to recount it. So, essentially, okay. So Bowman is left aboard the um, ship, as we've already established. Now, as the ship loses power, the gravity centrifuge shuts down. Obviously, it was generating an artificial gravity field, so everything becomes weightless. As that happens, um, we don't actually see the fire break out, but a fire, um, qu a quite significant fire breaks out aboard the ship um, and threatens to throw things into disarray because it sort of escalates rather quickly. Um, Bowman is able to, it eventually gets to the point where she can't contain the fire herself, so she has to um, evacuate, actually quite ingeniously evacuate all of the air from within the ship, and thereby obviously extinguish the fire by removing its fuel source. Now, it's at this junction we get our first look at the um, 2000, year 2000 CGI that the film relies on. <laughs> yeah. So that, yeah, that was a bit of a shame, because it really felt as though they'd gone for, well, I don't think this was necessarily deliberate. I think that the actual um, people in charge of the special effects must not have really had a lot of experience working with it because they seem to have gone for the budget option. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, surely two th yeah, 2000 special effects was much better. Like, than that. Yeah, much better than that. So it really seems... Well, I, I think I want to believe that it wasn't deliver. I think I, I want to think that um, it was just a lack of experience or a mistake. An honest mistake. Yeah, it, it's difficult to describe. It really does not look convincing. It almost looks like an animation. It looks almost like an animation. It's that bad at times. Mm. Um, I, again, I, I would be more sympathetic to how poor the fire effects look and some of the other effects if the film didn't have a budget of $80 million. <laughs> I That, for me, is quite a big thing. If you have that much at your disposal, 
I do expect a degree of quality. And again, I'm not a huge visuals person. I'm, I'm very sympathetic and I'm forgiving when it comes to visuals. I don't think it, it doesn't make or break a film, but if your visuals are so bad that they detract away from the film and they're jarring, they bring you out of the film, I think that is a problem. Yeah, I mean, decidedly so. Yeah, and unfortunately in this instance, I think the fire effects were just, just too poor. Um, now, you didn't see stuff on the ship. Shall I do the um, landing as well? Sure. Yeah. So... Meanwhile, whilst this is Bowman is trying to contain a fire aboard the orbiter, the lander heads down to Mars. However, it's established that it was damaged during the solar flare, and so they miss their intended landing site. And the it, it all sort of goes quite wrong. It's, it's a rough ride down, to say the very least. Um, and in order to um, land, they have to try to bring it in manually. They jettison the normal sort of landing gear, uh, which also has the robot Amy at attached to it as well. So that goes off into the distance. And then instead they actually deploy parachutes and the lander, and this was something that did actually happen um, with unmanned probes. This is one way that they landed on Mars, is large airbags emerged sort of around and encased the entire lander. And these airbags obviously act as a cushion when it finally did hit the surface. And that that's quite scientifically accurate because that is how unmanned probes were landed. Um, mm. The problem with Mars, but there's always been a thing with Mars, is landings on Mars have always been incredibly difficult. It's quite notorious, actually. A lot of probes have been lost on Mars. And it's mainly because there's enough of an atmosphere that you have to worry about it. You have to take count of it. But it, there's not really enough to demonstrably slow you down. So it, landing is, is a real difficulty. And <laughs> the, crew, the, the crew of the Mars expedition find, find that out when... They come down incredibly hard, then end up roll because again the orbiter is roughly spherical. They end up rolling across a boulder field, then down a huge cliff, and across <laughs> another bit of a boulder field. <laughs> so yeah. they go they go for a little bit of spin, and this is the first point in the film where I think you could reasonably say they probably shouldn't have survived that. No, um, <laughs> no, they, they were quite lucky. Mm -hmm. To have survived. Mm -hmm. All the assholes, anyway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, what do you mean by that, crazy? Elaborate for us. So, I mean, they pile out of the, the um, orbiter, and then very quickly they work out that uh, Chantillus has been wounded, and he's, well, he basically can't move. Um, yeah. Yeah, so they find, yeah, they say Chantillus' spleen is ruptured, and it's at this point that they um, they decide they have to leave the best actor they have well, to die at the beginning. The thing is that they, they don't necessarily make the decision of themselves. In fact, Gallagher actually goes, well, we can just carry you to the to the hat. Um, but he's he's decided that he's going to stay there and, and be like, I'm going to die here because if you carry me, you'll run out of oxygen. I've I've read the rest of the script, and you've already given me my check. Hmm. <laughs> I don't need to be here anymore. Yeah, it probably is. <laughs> That's what happened. Um... So they have so Chantillus is gone. So Terence Stamp is sort of left there um, just to die. Um, the rest of the crew go over to the Hab, which is the sort of as the name would suggest, is sort of the habitation dome um, that was set up in the months preceding their arrival on the planet. 
And the hab is obviously quite vital because they have a limited supply of oxygen and they need to reach it in order to, um, well, survive quite bluntly. Yeah. Yep. So they're, they're quite keen on finding this, um, this dome. Uh, takes a bit of, takes a bit of doing to, to work out where exactly they are because they've landed in, in a, well, in an ellipse where they, they don't really know exactly where they are, but they're somewhere within this particular shape. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it takes a bit of doing for them to work out exactly where they are in relation to the hab for them to then move in the right direction. Yeah, and they do a little clever thing where they have an image. They have an image from a sort of live camera feed from the hab, or at least a recent feed from the hab. And they see that there are some mountains in the background and they invert the image as if they were looking on the other side and realize that it's identical to a few mountains in front of them. So they sort of, in a reasonably clever way, work out that the hab is on the other side of the mountains to them. Hmm. Which and, yeah, I'll take my hat off. You know, for this film, that's that's you know the height of sort of novel thought in this film, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, credit where credits due. This film does obviously have points where the story is really good, but it's just really messy. <laughs> exactly, you, you, you've really got to delve through the muck in order to find those kernels of gold. Unfortunately. <laughs> so um, we'll. Yeah, so you say what happens when they reach the hab, and then you ask. Alright, so... Okay, so they've deployed Elmy... Uh, Elmy. They've deployed <laughs> Amy. Um, they wonder why there's no algae on Mars. They just put some here not that long ago. Uh, that's right, that's right. There's no... So they put the algae up, and there's no sign of it at all. Um, yeah. In there, there should be, because obviously that was the whole basis for their terraforming project. Hmm. There's supposed to be algae in this field over here. There's supposed to be red stuff. In the, in the area before, yeah, it's it's a whole mess. But um, okay, so they they see the hab on the horizon, yay! At the same time, we see through Bowman's screen um an orbit that the hab has actually been destroyed. No, um, <laughs> yay! The film's over. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, okay, so <laughs> they they're, they're running excitedly towards what they think is the have and they get there and find out it's in a million pieces mm-hmm. um and so they're basically like well we're screwed they only have uh, you know, minutes of oxygen remaining at this point yeah <laughs> they shouldn't have spent all that oxygen running yeah well exactly um, so yeah at this point they kind of group off um santon and pettingle go their own way for a bit who, who, who crazy who um <laughs> Yeah, that, that one guy who didn't really do much except for this one, except for this moment where he's arguing with um, uh, Santon, and Santon basically questions his masculinity, and then Pettingle, uh, Pettingle pushes him off a cliff. Exactly. Well, okay, okay. and this, this is one of the areas where it really goes weird because although it's established that Sentinel is a bit of an ass, to say put it bluntly, he really, really comes off as quite an ass in this scene. He's essentially, <laughs> he's essentially saying, you know, we're all going to die, but I did my job right. Yeah. You just go and die like a man over there. It's really bad, and it's – even for the characters who's already been established, which isn't that much, it still seems really overblown. And it seems very artificially constructed. It's almost as if they needed there to be a conflict, mm. and they wrote it accordingly without giving credence to how the character had been created previously and yeah. established. Technically, I didn't fail. Yeah, you did. Oh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We landed where we were supposed to. No, we didn't. 
So, yeah, so Man man Whom We Forget. Um, well, they get into a tussle and he pushes Stanton and realises Stanton's about to go off the cliff, does try to save him. Yeah. But then Stanton's gone. Yeah. So obviously, Pittengill didn't mean to kill Stanton, but it was just sort of a knee-jerk reaction that overdid it. And then Stanton was like, oh, no. Um, probably manslaughter. Yeah, manslaughter. <laughs> uh, still murder. Um, exactly. Yeah, but and it, then it gets, it gets into the court, and they get they get halfway through proceedings. Go, sorry, who is this man? Yeah, well, why are we here? Um, <laughs> yeah, so uh, Pettingall goes back to the remnants of the hab and basically just straight up lies to Gallagher and Birchnell, saying, "Oh, um, Santon threw himself off a cliff." Whoops. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this yeah. is when the oxygen starts to um, run out. Yeah, so the, the oxygen is well and truly on its way out of them at the moment. Uh, and they're all slowly suffocating. And then Gallagher has the brightest idea, and by the dumbest luck known to mankind, but not them, there's actually air on Mars. Exactly. So he's suffocating. And, and actually, before you get to I want to say... In terms of the standard of scenes and acting in a film, we'll get to that in the review. This is probably one of the more powerful scenes when the others have to li- literally listen to Gallagher suffocating mm. and their reaction. So, like, this is actually a really powerful scene. It's quite well done, I felt, um, for the standard of this film. Yeah, I mean, again, it, it, this film does have its moments. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so Gallagher is suffocating, and he. Uh, Again, in some sort of last, which you probably instinctively would, in one last desperate sort of effort, he lifts the visor of his helmet and takes off his helmet, trying to desperately gasp for air. And shock horror, as Crazy says, there is air on Mars. Mm, they can breathe. Exactly. Which Now, again, I, I may not be an expert in the science thing, but that shouldn't be the case, from what I understand. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> I think you, you're better versed on that than I am. I... Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't know. <laughs> no, see, so, yeah, so there is there is oxygen on Mars, and the others are overjoyed to learn that. And I think it's um, one of the makes remarks. In fact, oh, if only Sentinel had Sentinel had um, held on for a few more minutes. Mm. And then we're all just looking directly at Pettingall. <laughs> exactly. Like, yeah, what a shame. <laughs> Precisely. Oh. So there is so the oxygen's on bars, um, and they're all, they're all needed to say overjoyed by such a discovery. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, at this point, we should actually say um, they have they do not have contact with um, the orbiter at all. Um, they lost, I, assumedly, the radio was damaged when the lander crashed, so they have no contact with the orbiter. So at this point, they decide now they realize they can survive. What they decide to do is go to an old American rover, which has a radio transmitter on board, and use that transmitter in order to try and contact the orbiter. That's right, yeah. Yeah, um, and at this time also we should just say, um, having largely repaired the orbiter, Bowman is still still up there and believing believes everyone is dead and is just sort of basically preparing um, everything for departure in the coming hours yeah so the, as far as um as, as far as mission control is aware ground crew um is well uh, designated end of mission basically they're dead mm-hmm. uh as far as they're concerned they 
really don't seem to care all that much about them, and I don't blame them. Three of them are the same person. <laughs> exactly. Um, it's like, Medusa's are dead. We, we've opened the champagne. Yeah. <laughs> we, we miss Chantillus and that other that other fifth guy, whatever his name was. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, and... Uh, they, have a memor- they have a memorial for Putin, and no one turns up to his funeral. <laughs> So, yeah, well, I think it was at this point, um, because they hadn't heard anything, uh, Mission Control basically says, Bowman, uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're gone, you're coming home. Yep, exactly. Uh, now, do you want to take the scene, I suppose the next big thing is it's now night, that before they move out to the, um, before they begin walking towards the um, old rover, they decide to spend a night during the ruins of the Hab. And this is when we get reintroduced to our good friend, Amy the Robot. Yeah, so uh, Amy shows up, and she's she's been damaged by the, the landing, obviously. Uh, mm-hmm. Gallagher, I think, comments their process has been damaged. Yeah. Um, now, I missed the reason why they came to this conclusion, but basically it was um, uh, one of them throws up the idea that they have to put her down. Yeah, I think I think the idea is that they need to get manual control of her drones or something oh right the area yeah and to do that they have to kill her um virtual offers to kill her um he says it really loudly right in her face as well so (laughs) several times and this is a very technologically advanced robot that is capable of understanding human speech and is obviously self-aware enough to value its own life and so when Amy interprets the words kill her, um, as I've written here in the notes, activate crouching Amy hidden death bot. <laughs> she loses her shit uh, and uh, <laughs> uh, turns into kung fu mode and drop kicks Gallagher, off, uh, Gallagher and um, Hattingle to the side, turns around. And instead of killing Virtual outright, she just walks up and breaks one very specific rib and then fucks off into the distance. Yeah. Um, they get all back together and realize realize that, oh dear, Virtual has been injured by necessary plot contrivance. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Allow but, me to explain. Yeah, you go. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the whole premise is that... Um, that um, Amy is in guerrilla warfare mode, and she injured Bertrand because he would slow the rest of them down, which, again, is a legitimate strategy in those contexts. However, what they have to do is the writers at this point have written themselves into a corner because they have a robot there that, if it wanted to, could kill all three of them in a minute. Yeah. Yes. Could, I mean, we, one of them used an iron, a reinforced iron beam or whatever, steel beam, to try as a weapon against her, and she literally just chopped it into little pieces. In front of them, I mean, she could rip rip all of them, rip their spines into pieces in an instant. So the writers have had to try and contrive a way so that she doesn't want to do that straight away. So they basically end up in this situation where she's sort of in a search and destroy mode, slowly hunting them from the shadows and trying to kill them off one by one like a predator. Yeah, when that isn't even remotely necessary. It, it, yeah, like like what would have happened is. She would have emerged from the darkness, slain all three of them, again, probably in half an hour, probably waiting until they were asleep to do it, and then the film would have been over. Yeah. So as you say, plot contrivance. 
and Amy would have been our hero. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so Amy fucks off into the night and um, then we come back to daytime. Yep. Um, and this is when they make their way towards the rover, uh, which they, they, they're told they have night. They, they we know they have 19 hours to travel 100 kilometers, I think is what said. Yeah. So the orbiter leaves in 19 hours, um, and they have, which, by the way, given that one of them is injured, there's no way they're actually making that distance in that time. Mm. Five kilometers an hour with someone who is injured is not possible. No, that's hard, even if you're just an average person. I think, yeah, yeah, if you're like an average fit person, you probably could do it. Oh, no, actually, also in an environment which they've already said that the Martian atmosphere is like breathing at high altitude. Yeah. They already established that it's the air is thinner, so there's no way they're making it in that time. No. No. Not again, a chance. Again, I think we've, we've fallen into the trap of thinking about the film too much. <laughs> yeah. The writers, writers certainly didn't. <laughs> Good Lord. Um, so they head off to the rover. Um, they arrive at the rover, find the old, extract the old radio from it, start trying to send messages via it, um, don't receive anything, and then, oh, wonderful, um, convenient timing emerges. Yeah. So after waiting several hours um, for a reply from Boatman, uh, hoping that she received their messages, Gallagher picks up their makeshift radio and sort of goes through the motions of um, sort of pitching it as though he were playing baseball or something like that. Mm-hmm. And he, he does the sort of the motions of it and goes to throw it. And then right in the last second, um, Bowman's voice is heard over that radio and he grabs grabs it by this bit of wiring and pulls it back and sort of stops himself from making an absolute blunder. Yeah, yeah. So they managed, they've now able to converse with Bowman in the orbiter again, and she says that NASA now have a plan to get them off world. There's an old Russian um, rock um, extraction probe that never successfully launched, and they can basically stow aboard the probe's um, cargo bay and then use it to reach low Mars orbit and then rendezvous with the orbiter. That's right. Yeah. And although it's not quite established at this point, but it comes up sooner after, Gallagher is told by Bowman that they can only fit two people in the um, in the probe. Yeah, that's right. As well. uh, so Gall- at this stage, Gallagher is the only one who actually, of the three on the ground, that actually knows that at this stage. And forgive me, when I said 19 hours and 100 kilometers, um, it was actually in reference to going to the Russian probe. That was wrong. Yeah. So they have to cover that distance in a fairly short span of time with limited oxygen and someone who can barely breathe and move at the same time. Exactly. Um, oh, there's so much... I'm, I'm really debating how much we should cover, because there's a lot... Uh, in one respect, from this point on the film, the last sort of third or so of the film, in one respect, quite a bit happens, but in another respect, not very much happens at all. Hmm. Um, I'm... I, 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 okay, I suppose it's not we just gone. Should we go? Should we skip straight to the ice storm? I think at this point because they have some sort of dialogue exchanges, but nothing really comes of it. It's just sort there, of banter for the most part. There is one moment that I do want to touch on that I, I felt was actually quite nice. Oh yeah, please, please. Um, so 
in an interesting way, this film tries to establish a relationship between um, Gallagher and Bowman uh, with a flashback to their time aboard um, their ship through their journey from Earth to Mars. And I quite like that because um, it actually brings meaning to that journey and then sort of weaves more story <laughs> through through those moments in, in a way that's sort of easy and, yeah, and again, kind of nice. Um, and it shows that there are obviously um, romantic or burgeoning romantic affections between Bowman and Gallagher. Yeah. I mean, yeah... It's not all that great beyond that moment. They don't really do anything with it until the very end. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of like, uh, we're bringing this up just so that you're aware of it, so that we can justify them making out in the last scene. <laughs> well, I think, I, I think you can say it exists mainly for that catharsis at the end. Yeah. But I, I just, I liked that tool that they they'd used there. Um but that's it. <laughs> yeah, there's just one little bit of writing which is decent, I suppose. And <laughs> but like I said, yeah, as, as I've said before, the film does have its moments for all its failings. Um, but yeah, no, that was one of those moments. No, no, no it's well staged. That actually, it is. It is certainly one of the stronger interpersonal sort of relations between characters that emerges um, from the narrative. So they're heading towards the Russian probe, and they have to take shelter from a nice storm, um, rather unpleasant, very cold, and shards of sort of icy um what probably would be dry ice frozen cum dark side flying around so they take shelter in a cave and we also note that amy is nearby sort of hunkers down sort of on the ledge overlooking the cave so she obviously um is continuing to stalk for them and at this stage this is the point when in his infinite wisdom gallagher decides this is the time to reveal that the probe can only the russian probe can only take two of them mm. and naturally um Hettingel is nervous Mm. Um, because it's it's sort of established at this point that there is but Gallagher and Bagnall I, I, I do apologise, how do you pronounce his name crazy? I will get this by the end I'm quite sure it's Birchnell Birchnell, I, I don't, I always struggle with these names in films so Birchnell and it's established that Birchnell and Gallagher are probably closer than Pelling um, Forgetful Man is the one we forget is with the rest of them mm. so it's sort of established that, um, for obvious reasons, Pettinger is, as you say, suitably nervous that he'll be left behind. Yeah, but at the same time, uh, Gallagher, when he brings this up, uh, basically says, well, you, you guys go, I'll stay behind, and uh, I'll, I'll probably be the one to survive the longest, because you'll blow up the moment you go into, the moment you try to take off. But Which is a decent line. <laughs> yeah, a decent line. Uh, they have a they have a shared laugh, but Pettinger is not convinced. He He still believes he's going to get um, shafted. And believing this, he waits until everyone falls asleep and the storm stops to basically screw them over. He takes the radio and just bolts. Exactly. Uh, that, that strategy works really well for him for a few minutes. Hmm. Right up until uh, Amy shows up again. And <laughs> yeah, this was actually quite nice because at this time, um, Gallagher and Virginal have woken up. And the little monitor on Gallagher's arm that allows him to view, um, see things through Amy's eyes, activates long enough just to see her morgue living hell out of Pettingle. 
it's been established before that Amy has been blocking it. She basically controls what they see on that little monitor, and okay. she specifically um, activates it so he, they can watch her kill Pettingle, which, yep. was, which was considerate of her, I suppose. Yeah, certainly. I, <laughs> clearly, um, clearly part of a guerrilla um, guerrilla warfare protocol programming bullshit. Um, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so Pettingle is dead. Uh after which Gallagher and Birchnell leave the cave and head in that direction towards his body. And what do they yeah. find there, George? Well, they, they go to try and find the radio, which they manage to um, obtain, but they discover this green, mossy stuff on the surface of Mars. Hmm. But they don't see it as they approach. They see it when they're in it. Oh, uh, that's... I don't think... How the hell didn't they see that before? It's like they end up in the... Okay, so basically there is algae on the surface of Mars, and we see from sort of a, a larger aerial view that it's just kilometres and kilometres of the stuff. Mm. And somehow they ended up in the middle of it before they realised. Yeah, and of course Birchnell picks some of it up and like, oh my gosh, there's algae. Here's where the algae is, not in the areas where we thought it should have been. Bizarre. Right exactly. Um, so there is a, the algae on Mars, which you know, is, is a little bit of the mystery I solved, I suppose. Mm. Yeah. And then they reach Pettingill's body, uh, managed to pry the Pride, pride the radio from his cold, dead hands, quite literally, because that's what they have to do. Yeah. And then, what happens then, crazy? Yeah, right. So, um, we noticed this first by looking through, um, seeing the inside Pettingle's visor, but there are bugs making their way through throughout, the in, uh, throughout his innards. Um, and Birchnell notices something weird. Like, why does he, why does he have his visor down? There's, there's oxygen. He's got no reason to have his visor down. And obviously, Amy's done most of the work on his torso, so his face is fairly well protected. Um, he he leans in closer, and there's just the sound. Um, he does he does something stupid and sets off some sparks, which ignite these random creatures, and they explode and fly out of Pettingle's body like reverse <laughs> bullets out of a body, or or fireworks, even. He becomes a firecracker. Yeah, Pettingle the firecracker. He, he literally does. Um, and from that, they discover that these creatures are produce oxygen. And they're the reason there is oxygen on Mars. The creatures, these creatures, little insect things, eat the algae and, as a byproduct of that, produce oxygen. Mm. That's oxygenating the Martian atmosphere. Yep. And they've been quietly chewing their way through Pettingill's corpse. Hmm. As, as you do. I mean, it's probably the first time they've had human flesh and they you know, have developed, as we come to see, they've developed partiality for it. Hmm. Right, so yeah, um, that that's unnerving for both Gallagher and Birchnell, and they bugger off um, further into the field, um, algae field. Uh, at some point during this journey, we see that um, Birchnell is bleeding, um, which has attracted the <laughs> the nematodes, who are well, that they as as George said, they've gotten a taste for blood. So now they've swarmed Birchnell, and he's like, "I'm not dying this way." Lights <laughs> a fucking flare, and then drops it. 
he he makes he, he yeah he um again becomes again probably the most sympathetic character in the piece by deciding to die in a dramatic blaze of glory again quenchly mm. uh so fearing obviously he's being swarmed by these creatures and he has to um he has to obviously do something he drops a flare around them which uh well how can i describe it other than it incinerate in the space of a moment it incinerates the kilometers upon kilometers of algae fields mm. and i had a problem with this because their whole reason for being there was this algae they they get they land on mars and like where's the algae find the algae and what is then two minutes of finding the algae what did they do <laughs> it's a metaphor what's for that? humanity. What's it that? really is, isn't it? Yeah, oh and also, <laughs> so this thing, we, we see it from orbit, and it's quite distinct from orbit, so it's probably the size of like a country on, on, on an Earth analogue. And somehow Gallica survives. Hmm. Yeah, his protective suit protects him from being incinerated by the fucking explosion. Yeah. Probably large, yeah. An expl- it's probably larger than a nuclear explosion in terms of its the area it covers. Just... Oh yeah, easily. Uh, oh. But Gallagher survives. As he wants to do. Yeah, <laughs> Gallagher, who was pretty much directly at the epicenter of the thing, is fine. Yep, exactly. So he has a little um, little conversation with Bowman, who provides moral encouragement for him. Um, to carry on fighting, because then now he is the only one left. Um, he reaches the Russian probe, and I'll go through this next bit quite quickly, because we're ending the last stretch now, and things sort of come to a head quite promptly. Um, yeah. They re- reach the Russian probe, a little bit of a snafu in at the power. The probe's batteries have been exhausted, so they cannot launch the damn thing. Mm-hmm. Um, neat, and they have sort of a final moment where Bowman is preparing... They lose communications with Bowman, and she obviously, um, and she, she she has to depart very soon. So there's the expectation that Gallagher just just has to be left there. There's nothing that can be done. Have a sort of somewhat heartwarming sort of discussion with Bowman at that time. Yeah. Um, however, it was at, it's at this moment that Gallagher realizes, contrary to what he might have thought before. They do have, as he describes it, an alternative high-voltage energy source currently on Mars with them. Yeah. Um, and so this is where we come to the the showdown between the um, the hero of the story and the heavily forced antagonist. I, I thought you were going to say it's a showdown between the hero of the story and Gallagher. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, certainly depending on how you want to look at that. Um <laughs> Yep. Oh, so Gallica decides he needs to disable Amy and use her power core to essentially power this Russian um, probe. Which, by the way, I'm sure 30 year old Russian probe and super high tech military robot are completely compatible batteries. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you need it to be, especially when the guy who designed that Russian probe now owns a deli in New York. Exactly. The probe that didn't work in the first place. Hmm. You can see how he ended up there. Um, exactly. <laughs> is, yeah. is, that, is, is, that, is that just the new Siberia? You get sent to Delhi in New York? <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. I mean, of all places. Um, mm. Yeah, okay, so a bit of a fight breaks out as you'd expect. Um, Gallagher wins as you'd expect. Uh, but in a very sort of typical flair, as I've written in my notes, activate self-destruct mode. Yeah. 
So Amy basically decides to blow herself up. Um, that ends in a needlessly emphasized unrealistic explosion. Exactly, yeah. Um, uh, the fight is quite anticlimactic. Basically, Gallagher traps her in a parachute and sets it on fire. And it, it sort of has to be anticlimactic because in any other way, Amy would just disembowel Gallagher and be done with it. Mm. Yeah. Mm. But Gallagher then extracts Amy's power core, plugs it into the completely compatible Russian probe, launches in the Russian probe, um, enters orbit, is then sort of obviously can't dock directly with the ship. So Bowman um, goes out on a, a cord from the orbiter in a suit, brings the um, probe back into the orbiter. Um, one of the few decent scenes in the film, that simply because, it, as we'll get to in a review proper, it's actually a scene where the music matches the action on screen. Yeah. Yeah, actually, yeah, the only time the music makes sense in the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we have one of the, I, then we have one of the worst cop outs. I despise it whenever I see it in a film. Oh, this is terrible. So Gallagher had a heart attack during um, the um, launch sequence, which is fair enough because the probe was not designed to take humans. Um, but thankfully, um, after just pressing on his chest a couple of times, um, Bowman is able to revive Gallagher. Huzzah! Yeah, he was faking it. I, I, I just I just hate it. It's a cheap cop out. Ninety nine percent of the time you know exactly how it's going to end. It creates a false sense of drama and suspense. I just I just don't I just do not like it as a trope when I see it in films. It's one of my bugbears, so I have to say. Mm. Oh, fair enough. Mm. So I'll leave I'll leave the closing moments to you crazy. Right, so with Gallagher completely alive. Um a tender moment is had between Bowman and Gallagher where they finish the film making out and begin their journey home. So basically, you know, with everyone else dead, they get to have a, the most awkward six-month ride home ever. The end. Every every time they, um, you know, enjoy each other's company, which is established as what's going to be happening, they have those moments of, you know, it's just a strange thing of ecstasy and profound survivor's guilt that's going to be plaguing him on the journey home. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's not going to be a good ride. It's going to be a very empty ride. The, the, the halls, <laughs> the, you know, the, 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 um, the ship the, is going to be filled with the, the hollow emptiness of their comrade's memory. Uh, even there, you've, you've described what sounds like a much better film. <laughs> so the Martian, so the Mars One Explorer departs Mars. Our two crew members, Bowman and Gallagher, have survived. Um, we leave the barren, inhospitable, well, not quite inhospitable, production world of the Red Planet with the miraculous algae destroyed, the creatures destroyed, so oxygen probably depleted, and mankind doomed to suffer the return of Gallagher, whose ego is going to have gone through the roof. <laughs> <laughs> and that is Red Planet. <laughs> oh, um, do I? Because I, I was the one who selected this film, crazy. Do I owe you an apology? Well, no, that's fine. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Our friendship has endured lots. We can endure this as well. Yes, surely. Oh, well. Normally at this stage, we sort of look at the theme of the film, but I haven't done it for this film because I don't really think there is much I want to speak of. 
I think I think it's much more productive at this stage to look at um, the narrative structure of the film, look at how it was scripted, how it was plotted, and <laughs> as we will discuss, what went wrong. So I'll should I hand over to you, Crazy, because I think you've got four, should we say thoughts on this matter? God, where would I begin? <laughs> I mean, like I said, I, I liked the beginning. I thought the beginning was quite strong and clear. But as soon as they landed on Mars, everything got really messy. Um, as I've written in my notes, the movie starts strong, but in a weird symbolic kind of way, the messy execution of the story mirrors the messy situation the characters themselves are in. Like, you have, you have three characters who are the same person, a cast of people who are generally uninteresting. Um... Oh god, Blaus. They they land on Mars. There's too much going on through the middle of the film. So you have um, Crouching Amy, Hidden Deathbot. You have uh, the algae problem. There's oxygen for some reason for most of the film. And um, Pettengill's murder, uh, well, manslaughter that um, nobody ever really touches on. Not terribly, no. Uh, and then the dumbest move ever, the entire reason they're there um, gets incinerated because some guy wants to go out in a blaze of glory. <laughs> Literally. Uh, the music the music makes no flippin' sense. I mean, the, the, I, I reference the Rover Point in particular. They've got this sort of intense action-type music playing just right in that scene that almost feels like someone sort of slapped it over the top like a plaster and said, that's a scene. Mm -hmm. It felt really forced. I think forced is a very good summation of the film in its whole. Going to the plot specifically, you touched on it um, a, a moment ago, but I, I concur completely that I felt the script was trying to do far too much. As I said, there were three main sort of plot threads throughout the whole thing. You have just the general notion of people trying to survive on Mars, which, as the, the appropriate name film The Martian showed us, in and of itself can be a compelling narrative. Mm. Then they added into that the idea of the algae and the presence of oxygen on Mars. Why is that the case? And that whole need to sort of terraform Mars. Um, that, was, that was part of the plot line. And then on top of all of that, they added... Uh, just again, something that I noticed that when we first introduced Amy, we mentioned this, but it just felt, you know, again, killer robot Amy is just completely superfluous. She does not need to be there at all. No. And what, why would they need a military function for that kind of a, a machine, given their mission parameters, what they're there to do? Exactly. And it's a robot, it's a plot, so she is introduced as a pure piece of plot contrivance to add additional suspense. And as soon as she is added, she has to be muted artificially by the script, because otherwise she'd just kill them all off instantly. Yeah, exactly. So Amy shouldn't be there. I, I, I'm going to say you can probably get away without having the algae in there, but at that point it just becomes the Martian. <laughs> which executes it well it does I, I, I was thinking and we'll get to how we want to improve this film but I'm just thinking how would you improve this film I'd go and watch The Martian instead it's sort of oh, in terms of in terms of writing that's the big thing um, you touched on your on the characters and I couldn't I couldn't I, I could not concur more wholeheartedly with you I've said this previously to you but this, this says so much about 
the issues with the film. I think it, it, it's it's very symbolic of, of the overriding issues that they kill off their best actor and arguably most compelling character in the first 25 minutes and then have their second best actor and second mo most compelling character essentially on the periphery for the entire film, just at a desk for intents and purposes, acting as a go-between. Doing essentially nothing. Having nothing to do with that character. So their two best actors and best characters are sidelined for the film, either not there or sidelined. And I think that says so, in a very symbolic way, that says so much about the issues that the film has. It prioritises things that should not be prioritised and fails to further explore things that it would be much more interesting to have a look at. Yeah. It's, it's almost like maybe maybe they thought that um, the characters Gallagher, Birchnall, Sanson and Pettengill needed the most sort of conflict and change for their character arc within the story, whilst simultaneously ignoring the fact that you could do that with Bowman and uh, Shintoist without um, <laughs> look at me fail names um, it doesn't help it doesn't help that most of these bar Bowman are but some of these are just unnecessarily obscure names they are ridiculous names I mean Virginal is a dumb name um, Pettengill who the hell I, I struggle like I struggle with names normally but one of the things and this is true one of the things that makes them less memorable characters is the fact that their names are impossible to remember Mm, it's almost, yeah, I think someone tried too hard to think of a decent name. Names that maybe were less conventional, um, less well-known, and s still sounded interesting, but ultimately just ended up sounding ridiculous. Um, mm -hmm. Which really you only get with character names like Virginal, uh, Pettengill, and Chantillus. Um, but anyway, what was I saying? I was, I was arriving at a point uh. and then... <laughs> You've, you've had the pessing girl of uh, mental stages. <laughs> just mm. um, you were talking, yeah, you, so you were talking about the characters and just the fact that you, I think you felt they were just underutilised and they didn't, they tried to give an up to some of the characters. Yeah, yeah, well, as you say, they, they prioritised the wrong thing. They could have yeah. had um, Bowman be much more active if she were on the ground, but of course they needed someone up in the, up in oh. the sky. Which actually could have been better filled by Gallagher. Force him to give a shit about mm -hmm. his team who are on the ground while he's simultaneously powerless to do anything about it. Um, yeah. Mm. It would have made the drama a lot better. Um, and it would have also split up the fucking Three Stooges. Um, <laughs> exactly. And it would have also meant that the only female character in the piece actually had more to do. Yeah. Was actually active and doing something rather than passive and supporting yeah. the male cast. Um, exactly. I, I mean, look, this, this film doomed itself to never being able to pass the Bechdel test to begin with. But at the very <laughs> least, it would have been nice to um, it would have been nice to have the female character be a more proactive figure within the film. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, it was an absolute shame. It was just everything was done ass backwards in this movie. Yeah. Uh, going on to the music point that you mentioned, I oh, I despise that. I, for me, music is a big part of the film. I, I love you. Right? My own musical tastes are admittedly quite um, abstract and austere, but I I really do appreciate music that complements scenes. I really have a, a quite a weakness for that. If a, if a nice, um, elegant piece of music complements a scene well, I really, really do appreciate it. The Bar that one scene at the very end where they use 
somewhat classical music. I think it's sort of chanting, quite austere chanting, to when they're out in space, to, you know, um, as the backdrop to a space scene. Barring that one scene at the very end, which is very brief, all of the other uses of music in the film feel at best superfluous and at worst wholly incongruent with the scene that they're trying to, um, that they're sort of being played with. Hmm. Well, actually, I don't know how you feel about it, but I did quite like the music at the beginning of the movie. When you first see the shuttle. Okay, I... Perhaps it's me. Perhaps it's more a case I don't really like that type of music too much. Hmm, okay. Uh, for, I don't know, for me, for me with space, when you're doing a space film, perhaps it gets speaks to my own taste, but I don't know, the music should be slightly more bombastic or at least grand and have greater gravitas. Hmm. And I just felt that the music in this film didn't have that. In some some parts, it honestly sounds like it would be made on a synthesizer, for heaven's sake. Yeah. And again, I remind people, a budget of $80 million. Hmm. Yep. No, so I... I just, again, given the budget... Again, I, I don't want to keep coming back to it, but it is important. For me, for me, the amount of money a film has at its disposal does ultimately impact how I view it. Because if if it, you know if the film had a million dollars or even less to work with or a few million dollars, I would be much more prepared to be more sympathetic to it, because I would understand the limitations that they would be confronted with. So with the music, they wouldn't have been able to pay to have too much music composed. With these special effects, they wouldn't have been able to pay to have terribly proficient special effects. With the sets, they would have been quite limited. Um, and uh, speaking of the sets, what it's worth. There are some of those night sets in particular. I, I am, you know, I am never convinced for a moment they aren't on a soundstage. Yeah. Um, some, like I say, some of these sets are decent. Um, some, some of the sets aren't too bad. Like some of the daytime ones on Mars aren't actually too bad. But particularly on the night sets, it really doesn't seem too believable. No, um, you're right. Yeah, it, it, there were some of them I just was looking at, and it just, it just. Again, I, I knew her on a soundstage. It was that sort of poor, mm. um, unfortunately. And again, if you have a limited budget, I'm going to forgive that. But if you have a large budget, if you are a major production with you know, reasonable names signed up to it, I do expect slightly better than that. Particularly when it's a space film and recreating Mars. You know, Mars is the primary setting. It's essentially the name of your film for all intents and purposes. Recreating Mars should be something you really strive to do. And again, in some cases, it's not done too badly. But in other parts, it really seems as though they cut corners. Yeah, no, I'd agree with that. I know. So it's just, yeah, it just, again, just feels like cut corners is probably a somewhat absummation of the um, film in its entirety. What was your, I want to ask your thoughts on, we didn't mention it too much in the review, but periodically throughout the film, particularly through the Chantillis character, you had sort of slightly more, uh, a suggestion that the film was trying to speak at deeper themes. You had sort of discussions about um, about science, religion, sort of philosophy and the search for meaning and so forth. Yeah. What that... was your thoughts of them on that? It was, yeah, it. It's it's the same thing with the um the romance between Bowman and Gallagher. It was something that uh I'll try to put it into words. Um something that I would compare to the character from Event Horizon, the one who was only there when he was needed. Um 
<laughs> can you? Yeah, I know who you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, the Jason Isaacs character on Jason Horizon. Jason Isaacs character. Yeah. Um, it's it's the sort of thing that DJ. was only DJ. Yeah, the DJ character, the the situationally relevant plot element. Um, yep. which if they had really done more to um defer to that in the quieter moments for the film would have been great if they if they tried to really play on that theme throughout the film more consistently it would have been great but they didn't they only brought it up in maybe two or three moments in very specific moments and then the rest of the time you forget that that's sort of what they're trying to get at perhaps again perhaps it's me and it, i've actually studied some philosophy so it probably makes my view a little different but it was also when they did execute it, it was very superficial and very sort of, you know, pop sort of philosophy 101. It, it really was sort of very bare bones, as superficial a sort of discussions you could have. Mm. You know, a stereotypical person going, well, I have, I have two PhDs, I'm going to rely on that, I don't know this God stuff, which, again, it really seemed as though, it honestly, it honestly seemed as though the writer's, knew they were making a science fiction film and knew that the science fiction genre is often used to explore these much deeper existential sort of themes and felt that they, to have a deep, meaningful, profound film, they needed to add those things in, but did it in such a, dis not disingenuous, but ultimately did it in a way which betrayed the fact they honestly weren't too concerned by it. They were almost doing it just to tick a box. Yeah, and so not only was it executed poorly, it, was, it wasn't even conceived well. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And also, when you kill off again, if you're sort of if a deep philosophical character is Chantalis, 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 God, these names they're just that's that is another problem it, that really does make the characters less memorable. Uh, but if a Chantalis character um, is the one who is supposed to embody that sort of more philosophical or spiritual approach, killing him off early is not going to help push forward that theme terribly far. No. But then if the, if, if, if the way that that particular element was conceived was superficial, then it doesn't really matter how you execute it. No, no, it doesn't. You're, you're right. It really doesn't. Because it's never... If ultimately its conception was inadequate, no matter how well they executed it, as you say, it was always going to feel tacked on. And it, it, it never felt that the film's heart... It, the film was never committed to that. The film never had its heart in that sort of exploration of those sort of themes. No. And that's, like I said, that's why I'd much rather talk about it there rather than start off as we normally do, touching on themes, because I just feel that, as a film, I just feel that it really wasn't, A, it didn't give you a lot to work on in that regard, and B, <laughs> I almost feel like the film doesn't deserve that sort of deep analysis in one well, respect. Yeah, you're going to have to, to be fair, but... Um, yeah, again, it just it tried to do too much instead of doubling down on the points that mattered most, and it did everything else backwards. Yeah, exactly. I think that does that is a failure to appropriately prioritise. Prioritising the one things is probably is probably a fair summation of the film. So, before we move on to the final bit, is there anything else you want to touch on at all, Crazy? Um, yeah, well, I, I, <laughs> I wrote something in my notes that I think maybe I'll touch on when I rate it. Um, yeah, yeah. Actually, so yeah, yeah we'll cool. move on to the next next thing. Yeah, I think that's everything I want to talk about. Um, character setting. Eh. 
Yeah, uh, I suppose I'll just briefly mention science stuff, because um, I know myself and probably one other person enjoys that. Um, so, obviously, Martian gravity is about, give or take, about 40% that of Earth's. Obviously, in the film, you don't get any perception about the characters act and behave as though gravity was very similar to Earth's. I am going, I always give a film a pass on that matter because it's obviously easy to portray one G environments because that's just Earth. It's relatively simple to portray zero G environments, but it's very difficult from a production standpoint to portray environments that fall outside of those or fall between those two. So, I'm willing to give them a complete pass on that. I don't mind the fact that they didn't behave or objects didn't behave quite as they should have in that sort of gravity environment. Um, the issue of the way in which they were trying to um, terraform Mars is a bit of a problem because free f if you had free oxygen in the Martian atmosphere, it would almost certainly just be blown away by the solar wind because Mars doesn't have a magnetic field. So... That isn't a sustainable way to terraform Mars just by having algae produce oxygen, or in this case, those creatures produce the oxygen. Um, you ultimately, the issue would be you might get oxygen in the atmosphere, but as soon as those creatures stop being there, the oxygen would just go very, very quickly. You need something constantly there to replenish it. So that is that certainly is part of a technical issue. Um, there wasn't too much more else in the science thing. There were certain things like during the landing and during the re-ent, um, when they sort of left uh, Marsh, the Martian surface on that probe where they probably should have died. <laughs> I think yeah. That's probably fair to say. Yeah. <laughs> we touched on that a few times. <laughs> that They really should have died in other instances, I think, in the film. No, the luckiest human beings in the story. Yeah, exactly. So ultimately, I, the film doesn't do atrociously on scientific accuracy, but it's not something the film is overly committed to. And it's uh, and the solar flare was just ludicrous. That a solar flare wouldn't do that. Um, almost certainly wouldn't cause that damage. And they would have had warnings beforehand anyway that the solar flare was inbound. Mm. Yeah. So it's like I say, it's it's not a fantastically scientifically accurate film. But I think the, there are issues with the film that go much beyond that and eclipse that scientific side of things. Yeah, well, certainly. It's just another um, in a long list of problems. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And it seems silly to focus too much on that when, as we sort of touched on in the review, there are more egregious issues to address. Right, so for those who aren't familiar with us, at this stage what we do is we each give the film, take it in turns to give the film a rating out of 10, very original. We then advise whether we think you should stream, rent, or buy the film, or not at all, as the case may be. And then finally, we each offer a recommendation or two on, again, if, if we were sort of given the scripts to work on, how we might sort of improve the film um, in future. So I'll leave it to you to go first, Crazy. Mm. Well, actually, we did sort of cover this previously, in a, well, just talking to each other about it. I think we can probably just render our, our rating at the same time. Both of us, yeah. I think, settle very much on a 5 out of 10 for this film. Yeah, I'd agree. Um, Definitely 5 out of 10. And so, I mean, it was, a, it was a film that was, it's worth watching, just 
for the sake of watching it. You know what I mean? Like this, it's not mm-hmm. necessarily memorable. It doesn't stand out, but you can. It is watchable. You can watch it, and on some level, enjoy it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, it's. I would say it's. As you put it, it's competently enough made. So you know, it 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 isn't insult you to view it. You don't. You don't have sort of a visceral um, re- revulsion at viewing it. it it's toler- you can tolerate watching it, and there's enough there for it to be a distracting, superfluous popcorn film if you don't think about it too much. Hmm. Yeah. Um, how I would improve the film? Again, I, well, that's what you probably guess what I what I do. Um, <laughs> I reprioritize the focus of the film instead of having so many different things um, dial it down to maybe one or two things. Um, rewrite the characters completely because they suck. Uh, <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, obviously I put Bowman down on the ground, put Gallagher up in the sky, and kind of just leave it at that. Maybe not kill off Shintilis, maybe or kill someone else off. I don't know. Um... But that's certainly where I'd start. Yeah. I I concur completely with you. I would. Um, oh, before I actually you know, before I start, um, so would you recommend anyone oh. stream or buy it at all? Yeah, sorry, I don't forget that. Um, <laughs> it's the perengil yeah. of our review format. Hmm. <laughs> or oh, pet pettingle, George. Pettingle. Um, I don't know his name. Oh Jesus! I, I'll uh, get it. Once the review is done, I'll get it, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, doubtless. Uh, so, yeah, okay. I would honestly probably just stick to streaming it. Into it if you mm-hmm. feel like it, but I, my, my recommendation will be to stream it. I concur. I, I yeah, um, I would... I No, no, I'll go slightly stronger than you. I don't think you should spend money on it. I do not think you should spend money on it. It doesn't deserve your money. <laughs> um, if you, again, if you enjoy the genre... If you just want a distracting diversion for a few hours um, and don't want to think about it, or if you want a film that you can chastise and essentially take the piss out of with friends, then I would recommend it for streaming. Fair enough. Cool. Uh, and you'd... Um, I suppose you've already done your recommendations, haven't you? In terms I have. Of, cool. I, I want to... Second your notions, I think you sort of um, really took the same ones I would. I would simplify the plot line significantly, remove – I would remove Amy. Uh, as, much, as much as I might like, I would remove Amy. Um, I would probably remove the algae plot line. Well, again, I, I'm just going to end up recommending The Martian. I'm just going to re- end up writing The Martian, I think. But I would re- simplify the plot line down significantly and focus just on – the survival aspect, or may, maybe throw the algae stuff in there in a slightly more subliminal way, but it's there is oxygen on Mars, but it's a bit more of a mystery sort of thing. They don't just stumble on it. Mm. I would also change the tone slightly. I think the film, we didn't touch on it too much in the review, but I think the film has a few tonal issues, particularly early on. It's too casual, it's too laid back, or it's almost too, it, it lacks any sort of seriousness, and that doesn't, there's a disconnect between the casual approach to the film in its first little while, and then once they reach Mars, it becomes almost much more serious. Yeah. I would try to... The characters... And there are times when the characters almost seem to change a little bit too much. 
based upon the situation, almost by the, they, the characters seem to see, there are times when the characters, we touched on this briefly, where the characters, well, who they are, their disposition changes radically depending on the needs of the script and the needs of the story. And I would try to improve the characters by creating greater harmony, more harmonious characters that are a bit more subtle and nuanced, but also more consistent across the story. And that would probably involve um, keeping Chantillus alive, as you say, in bringing Bowman more into the story, and as you say, just rewriting the others um, probably quite extensively. Mm, yeah, because you don't need three versions of the same character. No, you really do not. I couldn't agree more heartily. So, ultimately, two five out of tens. I, I think it's fair to say a film that it probably deserves its negative reputation. However, it probably it's not quite as bad as the reputation might lead you to believe. Yeah, it's that's it, fair. yeah, it's still it's still watchable, and I mean we we, we had fun taking you know taking it apart because you re- as soon as you think about it you really can. But it, it's not the worst worst space film ever made, and oh, there is some. Shot. No, well, we'll get to those in time, but you certainly, I'm sure you certainly can derive something from it, if you're so inclined. Yeah, again, provided you don't read too much into it. <laughs> exactly. Marvellous. So two fives out of tens, incredibly timid and guarded recommendations, um, which I think is probably what the film deserves. Yeah, that, well, that, yeah, that pretty much sums it all up, I guess. Um... Marvellous. Well, right then, so we we'll leave Miles B, and we will um, we'll spare ourselves. <laughs> we'll slowly venture away from Mars and watch as the um, as the algae blossoms and the planet turns into a um, into a nice um, green world. <laughs> yep, with uh, <laughs> yeah, with, with all that noise. Um, mm. Jesus. Yeah. Oh, actually, sorry, stop. Uh, edit that out. I didn't. I, I was trying to go somewhere, and it's kind of fell apart there. Yeah. Well, yeah, um, do edit that out. Yeah. I'll I, I was. Out. I was trying to do something nice, and I, uh, I, I, I. It was one of those things where I thought I could do something, and then it, I got halfway through and realised I don't know where I was. Yeah. I was a bit wayward, drifting with that one. Well, was it sort of like you had, you had, um, you had what you felt was a good concept, and then, and then you got halfway through the making of it and realised you didn't, but you were too late. Oh, okay, just for that, I think you need to keep it in there. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> See how it sounds. And actually, in all seriousness, yeah, I think I think we should, if you're still listening to this audience, um, this is how the creative process works. Yeah, okay, so, I mean, yeah, I just, I, I guess I'm grateful that the actors who were in this movie maybe got something out of it because they went I mean Carrie-Anne Moss went on to do The Matrix and lots of other things and she's awesome Terence Stamp is basically a god Terence um, Stamp is fantastic and went on to do much better things I I do enjoy Val Kilmer, I really liked him in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang um, I've only seen uh, Tom Sizemore, the guy that played Birchnell um, I've only seen him in one other movie but I liked him in that movie too Saving Private Ryan yep yeah, no, I do um, like him that as well. He's been in other movies, I'm sure. I just that's the only one I, that comes to mind. No, uh, he, no, he's one of those. He's one of those characters. He might have been in wasn't he in Enemy of the State when he was one of the mafia guys in Enemy of the State. I think so, actually. Yeah, 
Lima, ya yeah. Benjamin Brett, I do I like him as well as an actor. He's, he's in a lot of movies and he's quite enjoyable. Um, Simon Baker, I love Simon Baker. I love The Mentalist for so many years. Um, no, and yeah. that's one of the things when you meant, when we were talking about it, you mentioned The Mentalist. I realized, oh, it was him, but obviously him, you know, ten years older. Yeah, and yeah, so I'm, I'm just glad that they they were able to become actors that that I enjoy. It's certainly one of the reasons for me watching the movie, I guess, is that it is a cast of people I enjoy seeing on screen. No, no, that that's completely fair. And another, another pleasing thing is that we we've done it now. It's done. <laughs> yes. Well, um, that's so that's all. I think I'll I'll sign off here, George. No, I I, I I think so. We've made them in. We've made we made people endure our um review of um a review of this film, and I thank them if they've managed it. Stay listening. Um, it's like I said, we I wanted to do a film. I did want to do a film that was obviously had somewhat of a more negative reputation because I, I, for two reasons. One, it adds diversity because we've done two good films, uh, broadly speaking, here too. And secondly, I don't want to run out of good films because I fear that's a possibility if we just steal them all at the beginning. Yeah, and that's fair enough. Um, yeah, there's yeah. plenty. There's plenty of plenty of films with, uh, to work on. Um, exactly. Any ideas of what we'll go to next, George? Well. I've been thinking about that, and we will have to do. Ah, uh, I, I, yeah, I've been thinking about that, and I don't know. Can you? Uh, do you have any ideas? Uh, <laughs> as I think of ideas, there's only one movie that comes to mind, but it's another one we enjoy. Ah, I think I know what that is. What is that by chance? Perhaps the absolute best B-grade science fiction film ever made. I think it. I think it might be time. Do you think? Do you think it's time to do Pandora? I think it's time to do Pandora. Okay. So, unless something, as we have a brainwave in the coming week, I think next time we will be doing Pandora. So, if you haven't watched it, um, it's available on New Zealand Netflix, isn't it? Which means if people are overseas, they should definitely have it on Netflix. Oh, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. We're, like, <laughs> we're the last people to get in here. But no. Um, Exactly. No, that's not true. Uh, but yeah, so next next time we'll be going through Pandora, most likely. Um, exactly. Well, with that done, I will end end our podcast here. And uh, thank you very much for tuning in. Uh, do leave some feedback if you want. Uh, where you can find us on uh, Facebook, uh, SoundCloud, YouTube. Um, we are also on iTunes now. Yeah, we are also on iTunes as well. Yep. Uh, and if you want to be in touch, yeah, just whilst I remember, if you want to be in touch, um, either contact us on any of those platforms, or if you're a little antiquated like me and prefer something anachronistic, you can email us at spacecadetspodcast, or one word, at gmail.com. Mm, if you happen to be over 40. Uh, <laughs> or George. Yeah, or George. Um, yeah, well, with that, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye, internet humans. <laughs>